Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. When you think of Mars, do you think of a barren desert planet? When you consider Alzheimer's disease, do you think of something that's inexorable? Well, I think that our guests today are going to change the way you think. The space geologist and the neuroscientist, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Each week on this program, we introduce you to two scientists from vastly different areas of research. But today's guests don't just work in different fields, they work in different worlds. Joining us from Jackson, Mississippi is Izat Hideri, a youth soccer coach and amateur silversmith whose recent presentation at the Geological Society of America's annual meeting made the case that trace amounts of water we now see on Mars are nothing compared to the deep, roaring torrents that once existed on the Red Planet. He's a member of the science team overseeing NASA's Curiosity rover, which is currently hanging out around Vera Rubin Ridge in the Gale Crater of Mars. Izat, I'm so glad you could join us today. I'm glad to be here, and thank you very much for the invitation. Also joining us from San Diego is Robert Risman, the owner of not one but two Corvettes, a 96 Coupe, and a 78 Pace car, which he tinkers with when he's not in his lab. His lab at the University of California at San Diego has published dozens of papers over the past few years that are increasingly focused on identifying biomarkers that may be able to help us detect and treat neurodegenerative diseases. He's the founding director of the Biomarker Core for the Alzheimer's Disease Cooperative Study. Robert, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Happy to be here. First up today, the space geologist. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Main engine start, zero, and liftoff of the Atlas V with curiosity. Seeking clues to the planetary puzzle about life on Mars. That was NASA commentator George Diller in 2011 doing the play-by-play as another Mars rover left our planet, likely forever, to explore Mars. Curiosity was supposed to work for just two years in the harsh Martian climate, but it's still out there hard at work and sending back information that is helping us understand our sister planet. That includes photos of sedimentary rocks, and Izat Haideri has examined those rocks, which are billions of years old, and he recently told the Geological Society of America that the formation of these rocks have the telltale marks of having been created by moving water, violently moving water. Izat Haideri, let's take a few steps back. Most of your career has been spent examining the geology of, well, of our planet. What made you want to start looking at the geology of other planets? It was a dream come true for me to look at sedimentary rocks from another planet which would have a fascinating story about the origin of our solar system, origin of Mars, and, and very likely about our own planet. What was the most important? Are we alone in this universe? Was at any one time and life on another planet, or there is life on another planet at the moment. That, to me, was really, really exciting. Like, how does that come to you? Did, did it come via email? Who, who reached out to you to ask you, know, you to look at these photos? It began really in 2005. You know, it was 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I was sitting in my office and was packing my backpack, and I was going to go home. And then my phone rang. And a colleague of mine called and said, you know, there is a, this mission to Mars, and 
and we have looked up your name, and you seem to have some information about looking at micro-analysis of rocks, and we'd like to know whether you'd like to join our team. Basically, I couldn't believe it. You know, I, I was drafted to look at rocks on Mars. I said, absolutely. I didn't know even how I got home after that. From that moment in 2005, we have been really looking at the possibility of, of course, how to study Mars. What you've learned from a career spent looking at geological formations on this planet really helped you when you started examining those photos that came back from Curiosity and from the other rovers. And in particular, I gather that you saw something that reminded you of formations that you're familiar with from Washington State, right? What did you see? That's right. I mean, um, Washington State uh, is the site where um, about a period in geological records we call Pleistocene. There were huge floods, and when I saw those rocks on Mars, it reminded me exactly that, because they they had similar features to those big floods that we have a record of on Earth, on Earth in, in Washington State. And these would have been back then, no small waterways, right? We're not talking about puddles or streams or even rivers. These rocks gave you an indication that we were seeing torrential floods. How much water are we talking about? We are talking about a lot of water. I mean, we are talking about water that, in my opinion, uh, at the stage flood, the velocity extremely high to be able to carry boulder-sized fragments for many, many kilometers. The same thing might have happened on Mars. I think most of us are familiar with the fact that there are now trace amounts of water on Mars. And I, well, I guess if you had told me that there were some small streams on Mars at one time, I'd I'd be able to visualize that. But what you're describing is a planet that was once a place where huge violent floods ravaged the planet's surface. That's a very different picture than what I'm used to. Did that idea takes some getting used to for you as well? It was. It was. But Mars right now is very, very dry and very, very cold. The average temperature is minus 50 degrees Celsius. Imagining that that much water was on Mars at one time is really, really difficult. But, you know, the waters, um, as they move, just they leave behind records of how big they were, how deep they were, how fast they were. And the, the record we see in Gale Crater indicates these were not such a small, tiny rivers. They were big, big floods with a lot of water. It tells me that Mars at one time had a lot of water. And the way you describe this in your paper, uh, you use the words large-scale, global, and dramatic outburst floods. And when I heard that, it brought an echo into my mind of something that I'd read before. That's what we had here on Earth starting about two and a half million years ago. So I'm wondering, can we say that Mars was once similar to Earth in some ways in our past as well? You said it exactly the way I think. I think the rocks that I studied are deposited on on Mars four billion years ago. Very similar situation on Earth existed about two million years ago. In other words, two million years ago, the northern hemisphere, most of all of Canada and part of the U.S., was covered by about two kilometers of ice. And when that ice melted, we had these huge floods that came to fill the Gulf of Mexico and other oceans. It seems very, very similar situation exists on Mars. In other words, one of the hemispheres was covered by a lot of ice. 
and due to climate change or some other factors, this ice melted at once and generated a huge amount of flood. This research shows that there was no shortage of water. There were plenty of water. And if there was plenty of water back then, and I realize this is the $2 billion question, then that would have been one of the key conditions for sustaining life, at least life as we know it, right? Exactly. Our research shows that there were not only there were fresh water, there were salty water, there were rivers, there were lakes, there could have been oceans on Mars. So I think that the possibility that life existed on Mars at one time is very, very high. We just, you know, we have been just looking for a short period of time. And we know from Earth that wherever there is water, there is life. And with all likelihood, there were plenty of life on Mars. This would have been, though, hundreds of millions, if not billions of years ago, right? Exactly. We are talking about a situation approximately 4 billion years ago. Of course, Mars, for some reason, went cold. And then, um, of course, the things, geological processes apparently kind of slowed down or stopped. But 4 billion years ago, it seems that Mars was very similar to Earth, or the way our Earth was 2 million years ago. Don't you wish you had a time machine? I do, absolutely. I would have liked to camp out next to a lot of those lakes that existed on Mars. Blue water. Absolutely. That's Izat Haydari, whose recent presentation at the annual conference of the Geological Society of America suggests that once upon a time, Mars had stable water, a lot of it, and maybe life too. Izat, can you stick around till the end of the show so I can introduce you to another amazing scientist? Absolutely. Thank you. Next up... The neuroscientist. Make me happy. Make me feel That is the legendary Hawaiian singer Don Ho singing his most famous song, Tiny Bubbles. And right now, moving through your bloodstream are millions and millions of tiny bubbles, which have been released by cells and which are carrying information around like little cellular mail carriers. This is your exosome, and it can impact multiple dimensions of cellular life, including, according to our next guest, neurodegeneration. In multiple papers published over the past few years, Robert Risman and his collaborators have laid out an increasingly compelling case that the exosome might play a key role in neurodegenerative diseases. Robert, we used to think that the exosome was just cellular garbage. What changed? You know, I think what what this was born out of is the cancer field. And, And the cancer field originally saw exosomes being released from very specific tumors. And they were able to tag them as being, uh, you know, indicative of the size of these tumors and actually where to treat. Besides just carrying debris and other things that cells don't want, they also carry signals. And I think when it made the bridge to the neurodegeneration field, that became very important because the cargo became more important. Over the past few years, your lab has been focused on understanding the role of exosomes for diagnosing Alzheimer's disease, diagnosing Parkinson's disease. Can exosomes give us a way to identify these conditions at earlier, more treatable stages, do you think? I think so. So one big problem in the neurodegenerative space is, of course, we don't have any viable disease-modifying treatments. So when I say disease-modifying, I mean things that could alter the course of the disease. 
there are some early therapies, particularly for Alzheimer's disease, that can make patients feel better, uh, but that are very temporary, and then the, the process continues. Having markers that are in fluids in our body is very, very important for knowing what's going on. So having a blood-based biomarker is a very attractive idea because it can be done practically anywhere. And I don't want to oversimplify this, but this really is a matter of drawing some blood and processing it in the right ways, right? It really is. Historically, a problem in the field has been that we have not had platforms or assays that could really detect changes sensitively in disease. So we're just getting to that point now that we can actually distinguish what's actually coming from the brain from what's coming from the body. And exosomes, neuronal exosomes, are a great, great way to do that. In 2016, your team demonstrated the ability to predict the conversion from mild cognitive impairment to dementia by looking at the exosome content of the blood of test mice. Now, I know, and we always have to say, the jump from mice to humans, that's a really big jump, of course. But maybe you can give us an idea of what the status of that jump is in regards to using the exosome to more precisely diagnose disease stages. We've been actually pretty successful in uh, replicating those original results, and other groups have as well. And we've been actually able to show that levels of a protein called beta amyloid in these neuronal exosomes and also another protein called tau, these are both involved in the neurodegenerative process, actually change in humans who have mild cognitive impairment and progress to dementia compared to mild cognitive impairment patients who don't progress. So they have actually been very useful in looking at banked samples. Our next step now is to look what's called prospectively, look at a future collection of samples and actually run this against other companion biomarkers, such as cerebral spinal fluid, such as neuroimaging, to see how it holds up. And that'll allow you to use past data to inform what the metrics say about how these exosomes, how do these new biomarkers can help us predict things along the way, right? Correct. So there's a lot of research activity right now around the protein you just mentioned, the tau protein, uh, and how it plays into Alzheimer's disease. You've got a paper coming out shortly in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease that suggests that the exosome plays a key role in the propagation of tau. Can you talk a little about that? In addition to being a marker in blood for Alzheimer's pathology, exosomes can also be used to transmit information between cells. And I think that's what they were originally identified to do, particularly in the cancer field. We find that they can do this too in neurodegeneration. When we administer exosomes into the brain of, let's say, a mouse, human exosomes from, let's say, an Alzheimer patient, those exosomes can actually enter cells, release their tau protein, and propagate changes in those cells in the mouse brain. So these data indicate that you can actually spread pathology from one cell to another using exosomes. I mean, that's a little bit terrifying. It's not just like a mail being sent from one place to another now. It's sort of like a, a package bomb. It easily, exactly. That's, that's part of the issue here is that we don't really understand yet why exosomes go from particular cells to other cells. We don't actually understand whether or not they unpack their cargo, repack other cargo or the same cargo, and then are re-released again. I mean, it, it sort of seems a little scary in the sense that, yeah, you could be transmitting neuropathology from one cell to another. How amazing and also frustrating is it to be in a part of science that's opening up so rapidly that you 
I, I assume you don't have time to answer all the questions that you'd love to answer. Yes, and in fact, if anything, I think my research and others generates more questions than answers. And I think that just shows you um, really where we are in the space of understanding biology, particularly the biology of neurodegeneration. Because of the field you're in and because of the desperation that so many people feel when they or a family member are afflicted by a neurodegenerative disease, do you get contacted by a lot of people like begging for fast treatment for, for the cure to their ailments? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, and I wish I could help these people more. Uh, the most I can really do is refer them to one of our current clinical trials that's ongoing and, you know, see if they can be a part of those. Um, there's quite a number of them out there. Uh, clinicaltrials.gov lists most of those. That's Robert Risman, whose recent research has given us a much better understanding of the role of the exosome in treating neurodegenerative diseases. Robert, can I introduce you to our first guest? Yes. Well, Robert, this is space geologist Izat Hideri, and Izat, this is neuroscientist Robert Risman. Hi, nice Robert. It's so wonderful to know you. You too. Robert, you were listening in as I chatted with Izat about his analysis of the photos of Martian rock formations. What did you want to know that I failed to ask? The one thing I was thinking about, we were talking about moving water on Mars, but is there evidence to suggest that it actually is water? And in terms of life being on Mars, I'm just wondering what evidence there has been to suggest that that is the case. Well, uh, in terms of uh, moving water, the features we see on Mars in terms of comparison with what we see on Earth is exactly similar situation. I mean, we have a one-to-one -one correlation of features that form by water on Earth versus the ones that are formed by water on Mars. The rocks are the same, the features are the same, the rounding is the same. So there is really no other alternative and than water causing these features we see on Mars. So we have a difference in time scale, right? So if yes. if the Earth was in this shape two million years ago and Mars was yes. in this shape four billion years ago, and you're saying they're similar, what role does time have in, in that? Would you assume that something that happened two million years ago would be the same now as something that occurred four billion years ago? Earth uh, might have experienced this kind of situation many times over. In terms of Mars, it seems that Martian history in terms of movement of water came into a very sharp stop at about 4 billion years ago because Mars kind of became very cold and lost most of its water. These processes occur whenever you have a large amount of ice and this ice melts. In Mars, this situation existed 4 billion years ago, and it kind of stopped after that because Mars went totally cold and kind of lost its water as well. And in terms yeah. of life being on Mars, what, uh, what information do you have that that possibly was the case, um, you know, that perhaps was using this water? We don't. We, so far, we don't. We have a good team of, wonderful team of organic geochemists they have found some molecules that look like organic molecules, although they are not yet certain that they are made by any life form. But our analogy from Earth is that anywhere on Earth that you find liquid water, life comes with it immediately. So the, the, the hypothesis is that if there were liquid water and kind of a 
moderate temperature, above freezing temperature, life would have originated. But we don't have a firm evidence as of yet. Maybe I can shift gears a little here. Uh, is that do you have people in your life who've been victims of neurodegenerative diseases? And while I was talking to Robert, what questions came up in your mind? Oh yeah, actually, I was so happy that you know we're going to have and uh, Robert on the show and talk with him because my father-in-law right now is experiencing Parkinson's and he's a writer and he used to be a writer, very active. I am wondering whether we can generate some exosome and inject them into the cell and give him the medicine that resolves the Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. Is this a possibility? Those are uh, things that people are considering now. You know, the utility of exosomes to cross the blood-brain barrier and actually deliver medication or other things to, to target cells. What's needed in order to be able to do that is to, of course, understand you know the properties of these man-made exosomes, if we're not going to be using ones from patients. And then also, just the biology of understanding where exosomes go and how they know where to go to be able to deliver uh, medication. So I think it's a little early to be able to do that, but it's certainly not an unreasonable idea, and I know several companies are thinking about it. In terms of Parkinson's disease, I mean, I think there are some reasonable treatments out there, right? I mean, we have the deep brain stimulation. There's also quite a number of medications that actually help with some of the symptoms. So I hope your father-in-law is taking advantage of some of those. Yes, they have indeed. They, you know, they have been experimenting with different drugs and different dosage, and they have had some successes. But again, as you said, this is degenerative, and is going to, you know, eventually is going to, you know, take its course. And the other question I had regarding your research, you said that these things begin when people begin to have a small uh, kind of um, cognitive issues. Is it possible to, to recognize that these cognitive issues are eventually going to lead to, let's say, Parkinson's disease and then cure them at that time? Right, right. It's thought that whatever the changes that occur in the brain are occur very, very early, and you begin to have like deposition of neuropathology. And those actually happen somewhere between 10 and 20 years before you actually see real outward symptoms of either changes in, in motor ability or change in cognition. And that's where the whole field in both neurodegenerative diseases is going now, in the idea of prevention and getting in there in that window between the symptoms beginning and the neuropathology starting. Well, I'm so happy because all the news I hear that, you know, these are degenerative diseases and there is no cure for them. So in your opinion, there is a possibility with all the funding, you know, available for NIH, is a possibility to develop some sort of cure to either stop or, or reverse this kind of degenerative diseases. Oh, I'm definitely very optimistic. I mean, we have several ongoing trials now, and we are going to have many more to come, particularly in Alzheimer's disease. I really do think that in the next five to ten years, we should have something. I really love the climate of hope that surrounds neurodegenerative research right now. I think it's uh, it's something that's come up in recent years that if you look back 10 or 20 years ago, I think a lot of people felt very hopeless around these diseases. Yeah, it's true. And I think a lot of that is because we didn't really understand, you know, how to track the disease in its earliest stages. I think going through these trials that we have, which have been ultimately unsuccessful, have given us very, very valuable information about where to look. So unfortunately, we weren't able to treat anyone with those trials, but hopefully we can treat future people 
with those data. We know that the journey to Mars and life on that planet is going to do a number on our organs, on our cells, on our epigenome. Does it stand to reason that it's going to impact our exosome as well? I would think so. I mean, remember that what, ha- what occurs in exosomes is a reflection of what's going on in your cells. So any changes, any cellular stress or other changes that may be imposed on your cells would reflect in the number of exosomes, potentially the cargo of those exosomes, and where they go. Is that from your perspective, what are the big barriers to setting up colonies on Mars moving forward? The biggest one, of course, is the is the, is the long distance of travel, in my opinion. I think we are very well set to set up colonies, whether we are going to be able to live in that extremely cold climate and the food. To, I mean, at this point, we are not able to grow food on Mars. I think we can do it, but I wish it was a little closer that we could, you know, could travel back and forth. But I guess if you develop some sort of engine that cuts that travel to a very short period of time, that would be a whole lot better for, you know, for the people who are going to live on Mars maybe within the next decade. Right now, there are different engines that they, they can go up to two times the speed of sound. If we can get to a point that we have ten times the speed of sound, maybe we can, we can cut down that travel by a tenth. Robert, would you want to be on that spacecraft? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe not the first one. <laughs> I'll, I'll let someone else <laughs> guinea pig that one and, and maybe in the future. How about you, is that? Would you want to be on that trip? I don't think I can sit in one place for long travel, but like Robert, I will wait for the for the next round. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time. Is that, hey, Derry, thank you so much for joining us on Undisciplined. Sure, absolutely. My pleasure. And Robert Risman, thank you. My pleasure. You can download this and other episodes of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. We have production help today by Tom Williams. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tussauds. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.